This is the second part of a conversation with Cedric Johnson, who contests virtually every aspect of our current left socialist consensus on policing in the U.S. Its origins in slavery and Jim Crow, the problem of police unions, and even the possibility of a police-free society. Cedric Johnson is Associate Professor of Political Science and African American Studies at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Our conversation is based on Johnson's chapter, Trumpism, Policing, and the Problem of Surplus Population, in the new book, Labor in the Time of Trump. We're joined by one of the editors of this book, Claire Hammonds, who is Professor of Practice and Graduate Program Director at the UMass Amherst Labor Center. Uh, You can see more about both authors in the show notes. In the first part of this interview, Johnson places the origins of the policing we are protesting in the Cold War rather than slavery and Jim Crow. He argues that its main objective is to subdue the poor and unemployed, the, quote, surplus population, who are indeed disproportionately non-white. Though my own current understanding is different from Johnson's, I found his perspective and his specific account of the Cold War period uh, very useful. In the second part of our conversation, Johnson, Hammonds, and I talk about the efficacy of protests and the possibility of a police-free society. We also touch on the question of police unions. As with the first part, I found Johnson's skepticism about the broad agreement on the left on these questions quite valuable for my own thinking. Maybe I can ask uh, both of you about uh, this, although, you know, Cedric, you bring it up explicitly in your chapter. Um, uh, you know, you towards the end of the chapter, you write about the limits of uh, protest against particular uh, racial injustices um, as a strategy, and so then you, you know, your your response is we really need a more sustained uh, movement for uh, you know sort of much but broader sort of I think what what we could call economic rights, um, um, uh, and so for for both of you, but you know, starting with uh, with Cedric, um, uh, yeah, how how do you how do you think about this in the light of uh, of the current round of protests uh, about the police in particular. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Um, I mean, I'll offer a few thoughts, but I'm still definitely trying to make sense of it all. Um, I guess I'll, I'll start with a, uh, a statement from a, a friend of mine, Corey Robin, back during, I think it was during the, the 2016 um, election where he just kind of mentioned in one of his like um, Facebook or social media posts, you know, he kind of used this phrase that we're learning, right? You know, and it was helpful to see that because I think, I mean, being a little bit older than than um, some of the Black Lives Matter activists, right? I mean, there is a tendency to to recoil or to at least be skeptical of some of the things that people are saying and doing, because some of it I've heard before, right? I mean, this is in many ways a replay of like the black consciousness and Afrocentric uh, politics in the late eighties, you know, Mm -hmm. that I experienced as a, as a teenager and early 20 something, which was also a replay of black power, you know, activism and, you know, from the the 60s. So I think uh, when I saw Corey mention that, you know, in response to somebody who was being hypercritical, 
I think uh, I think I have to also remind myself now, right, that for some of the people who are out in the streets right now, this is the beginning of something for them. Um, just like, you know, fighting in Louisiana in the 90s to defeat former Klansman and neo-Nazi David Duke twice when he ran for statewide office was a beginning for me, right? It was a chance to to learn the the, mm. the um, you know, the nuts and bolts of politics and how to canvas, how to go door to door, how to think about strategy. And so I think for some people, right, you know, maybe we can't see what this is going to mean, you know, um, for different parts of the population. Uh, so that's my optimistic, <laughs> that's the optimistic <laughs> part. Let me offer a little bit more criticism. I mean, I think, I think it, there's a fetishism of protests, right? And I think it's amplified by social media, right? So there are people who, there are definitely activists who've been doing this for a while. I don't want to discount them. There are people who, who are organizing these marches, who are planning, um, you know, uh, demonstrations and actions in different parts of the country. I've participated in some of these things, and so I'm not tossing them out as, as insignificant. But there are also people who are in this because it's trending, right? And because it provides a moment to to uh, maybe to belong. Maybe it's also a moment of social gathering that they've been missing after having been, you know, uh, sheltered in place for a few months. So I think that there's a, there's a lot of different parts to this as to why what is motivating people why they're out there. Um, my concern, and this is maybe the more critical point is how do we go from the street demonstrations, marches, to uh, actual legislative majorities that are capable of winning, right? So in a place like Minneapolis, we've seen the pledge from the city council members who are now ready to, to move forward with a plan for dismantling the police. I think they've got a year-long period of public input, mm-hmm. and then they're going to come up with these alternative strategies for for uh, public safety. And so in that place it's working. Here in Chicago, I don't see as much of a majority emerging, right? Because we've mm-hmm. got a real conservative city council situation. And even though there's some great socialists who've been elected, they don't constitute anywhere close to a majority. Uh, so I just wonder, like, given the, the highly variable uh, political geography of this country, we may see some some progressive uh, majorities emerge in, in certain cities, but in other places, especially really big places like New York and Chicago and LA, I suspect we won't see as much um, of that. And I think that's where the challenge lies, right? It's mm. not just the showing up for the protest and you know posting on Instagram. It's also the protracted work of how do you get the things that you want? I mean, all of us who are involved in union stuff know that this stuff is boring, right? The real work of it is like sitting in meetings you don't want to be in, <laughs> reading arcane, you know, language, <laughs> making, you know, editing that sort of stuff. Like that's the work, you know, and then meeting with people who you might not necessarily agree with on, on other issues, but they might be a, a real ally in order to achieve something specific in the short term, right? So I think it's the, the more mature understanding of politics as a process that's protracted, it's winding, it's complicated, it's not always fun. Um, I think that's the that's the what has to happen beyond these these immediate um, 
upsurges. And I think our role as intellectuals should be to still criticize some of the things that are happening, right? I mean, people get frustrated if you say that um, a lot of this is just liberalism, right? A lot of it mm. is the same demand for recognition that we've heard in earlier periods. And, you know, yanking down a monument, you know, is, is, is probably exhilarating in the moment. But it's much easier to pull down, you know, Robert E. Lee, who's been dead, you know, for like <laughs> over a century, than it is to contest some of these people who are in power right now, right? It's in our own towns, right? In our own cities, right? It's much more difficult to do that. It's also easier to attack the police union and police departments and demand that that funding be redistributed than it is to, to criticize the kind of... of um, corporate, you know, a subsidization of corporations that happens in cities, right? Subsidization of private sector development. That also is a drain on local um, public coffers, right? So nobody's saying, you know, so in a place like here in Chicago, we've got two mega development projects that were approved right as Lori Lightfoot came into office. And sure, there was some activists who were saying, let's get a community benefits agreement. But we didn't really see the same sort of opposition to that, right? The same, you know, anger about that kind of redistribution, you know, upward redistribution of public uh, funds that we see about police, right? So maybe this is the beginning. Like my friends always say, oh, you know, this is the beginning, right? You can't, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Maybe this will open up different kinds of redistribution conversations, but um, I think it's still, even if that's what's going to happen, it's still our job to push, right, to push people to think about these issues in a, in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I can I can say, uh, you know, from my limited experience uh, here, so, you know, I, I am a member of our Pioneer Valley uh, DSA chapter, um, and you know, many of the uh, the people who are involved in the uh, sort of, uh, you know, thinking about uh, or, or demanding, you know, defunding uh, the police are also, have also been active in the struggles for, you know, affordable housing or against property development um, uh, of certain types. And, um, uh, and uh, you know, in New York, I, in particular, uh, at least among the DSA folks uh, that I know of there, that's, that's you know, it, it isn't one or the other. Um, uh, but, but yeah, for, for politics as a whole, uh, I, I, I see what you're saying, that there's a risk that this eclipses the general redistributive sort of demands, you know, and then it becomes about, basically moving money around from one one row in the spreadsheet to another right. um, it could it could very easily become become about that um uh claire did you did you have uh, did you have some thoughts on on these these issues yeah i i guess i'll say um there was there's a lot there and i i had a number of different thoughts sort of as you were as you were talking cedric um you know i think just to this question of sort of what what comes of this and sort of what are the the next steps as we're sort of thinking about moving forward. I think, you know, in some ways, I think for a lot of people, developing that mature understanding of politics often comes out of protest. And, you know, I think one of the aims of protest is to be disruptive to, to the power structures that be. But 
but beyond that, I think there's also something really powerful um, that can lead to a sort of development of a collective consciousness of just the sort of like physical act of being there and standing in that crowd and standing side by side with people and demanding mm-hmm. something that, you know, that gives you a sense of your power that you don't have if you're, if you're not there in that, in that presence. And so I think the question then becomes is how do you take that moment and that feeling of power that people often walk away from if um, walk away from a protest having um, and transform that into some sort of lasting organization that's able to, to build um, power in the long term. And in that sense, you know, I think the, I think the labor movement and, you know, the union movement does have an existing organizational structure that, that can do that. And it's not perfect in a lot of ways. (laughs) And I think it has a lot of internal work to do, but I think, you know, that, um, that it has a lot of the, the basis of it and, and certainly, um, has a lot of practice doing these kinds of things. And so I, I hope that this is something that the union movement takes seriously and thinking about how do you incorporate these people who's, um, who have been like transformed from participating in these protests, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, uh, so, uh, you know, if I can impose on you guys for a few more minutes, since we are heading towards this anyway, uh, like, do you have specific kind of, uh, uh, thoughts about, you know, so, so the, you know, the whole defund or, uh, abolition of the police, which, um, uh, you know, I understand means slightly different things depending on who's saying them, but but let's just say there's a common you know sense of uh, of of what that means. Um, uh, and then also, sort of, uh, you know, both of you are are you know labor uh, labor folks. Um, what what do you make of police unions uh, in this in this context? Um. I don't know, Claire, did you want to go? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the issue of defunding the police, I would say that it has, you know, that wasn't even a term I was, that I think was sort of in the collective consciousness until fairly recently. And you raised mm-hmm. the point of how it means different things to different people, right? Like on the one hand, there's a version in which defund the police is just like moving money around at the margins, recognizing that all of our state and local governments are going to experience significant drops in revenue as a result of the economic crisis of the pandemic. And, you know, in one version, it's just saying like, all right, we're going to cut a little bit more from police than we are from schools. And then on Mm -hmm. the other hand, you have defund the police means we're getting rid of police. And then that's a question of, okay, well, what is the structure that we put in its place? Right. What is, when people have problems, who do they call? Um, and so I, I think absent having a conversation about what the specifics of that means, if um, I don't, yeah, I don't know how to have a conversation about it without mm. being really specific about what that call is. Um, mm. Mm. You know, and, and I'd say on the, on the question of police unions, um, It's, it's a very, you know, I've seen locally that it's, um, it's a very 
fraught and difficult conversation. Um, in a lot of ways, it um, it forces unions to answer at times difficult questions about what is this movement about and who is it for um, that can be really uncomfortable. Um, and uh, I don't know that there's sort of a straightforward ideological or bureaucratic response to that. Police unions are uh, police and law enforcement in general. If, we're, if we can start including, um, you know, prison guards, ICE agents, et cetera, um, are, you know, scattered throughout the labor movement in many different unions. Um, mm. And, and, you know, and at some fundamental level, police unions have negotiated contracts that state and local governments have agreed to. And mm. I think they are a problem, but I think without looking at the sort of larger problem of the, the system of policing that we've built and agreed to, that, um, that simply removing police unions from our federations or dissolving them of collective bargaining rights, which I would never advocate for, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't get us what we want. <laughs> Mm, mm, mm. So, so you're opposed to sort of even if this were possible, to just sort of the demand that a police should not be allowed to be unionized. I think. Or, police, or, yeah. I mean, so yes, I think the police are workers, um, and workers should be allowed to collectively bargain with their employer, and I think that once you go down a road of um, starting to, to carve out pieces of that demand and say, except for these people, they shouldn't be allowed to collectively bargain, um, you are on a, on a slippery slope to undermining your, all of your arguments for why collective bargaining should exist at all. That's the same thing that Jake Rosenfeld uh, said in a previous uh, conversation, and he said specifically for public sector workers, you know, which is our last sort of union bastion, you know, as a as a sector, um, that you don't want to start carving carving up uh, exceptions there. Um, uh, Cedric, did you want to say anything about this? Yeah, I, I would. Um, I mean, I agree with Claire. I, I'm not in favor of uh, taking away collective bargaining rights from a particular group of, of workers. And I actually think that that entire argument that somehow it's because of the police unions that um, we see this, these, uh, you know, bad cops are able to get away with with uh, with bad behavior is actually not not really true from the things I've looked at over the last couple of weeks, right? That there are five states where it's illegal for police to engage in collective bargaining, right? So uh, Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina, um, South Carolina, and Georgia. So not surprisingly, southern states. And those mm. those aren't any um, they aren't any better in terms mm. of police violence. You know, rates of of uh, violent incidents or even police uh, killings than other places, right? So I think. I think just like the notion of the prison industrial complex where people believe that the carceral expansion was related to profit making, and it's actually not. It was a form of, you know, statecraft and trying to appease 
uh, certain constituencies real and imagined anxieties about crime. Um, mm. I think this is another slogan or, or idea among, you know, people who mean well because they want to try to change this, you know, violent uh, system. But it's misguided in terms of, of whether or not it's the unions, right, that, that are the ones that are, are, uh, are behind it all. There's also something, you know, within this, I just want to make this point as a sidebar, that I think we all have to reckon with at some point, that how do we have a, how do we have a functioning uh, state, right, without some sort of, of uh, coercive dimension, right? Like, so I don't think we can completely separate our force from, from uh, the state as we, you know, as we experience it right now. We can reduce it. We can bring it under much more democratic control. We can make it much more non-lethal, but it's still going to be there, right? I mean, if, if I know that a police officer can't lay out some roadway spikes to stop me, I don't have to pull over, right? If, if, if uh, you know, I can, mm -hmm. I can break laws if I know that there's no, there's no uh, authority in place that can compel me to do something different or even put me, you know, place me before a court when I've broken the socially agreed upon, you know, laws that we have. So I mm. think there's some, there's a, there's an argument that's uh, not an argument, but a discussion that's missing from some of these conversations about abolition. I'm not, I'm not making a pro police case. I mean, I mm -hmm. do think, I do think that we should try to right size. We should scale down. We should demilitarize police. I think there are a lot of technocratic things we can do to um, to improve what what police do on a day to day basis, but I think the bigger issue, and maybe this again, you know, um, instead of abolition of of police as such, abolition of the class conditions that police exist to manage might be a bigger and more important front for us to fight on. And I do think that mm. like some of the defund arguments can lead in that direction. So um, the one that was prevalent here back during the Laquan McDonald protest uh, in, um, in 2015. Um, the whole fun, fun Black Futures was, was one mm. of the, the uh, campaigns. So the argument is that you take money away from, from police, you, know, you divest in police, you break the ties or you know, connections between police and the Chicago um, public schools. So you scale back the size of police, and in the place of that, you begin to spend more money on social programs, you know, youth jobs, and other things targeted at at uh, the South and West Side neighborhoods. And I'm all for that as a beginning. I don't think it goes far enough, right? I actually think that um, something along the lines of a um, um, public works at a metropolitan scale could go. To do much more, right? To mm. to address the problem, right? Which is the 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 fact that people are excluded and dispossessed, right? They don't necessarily have the routes or paths towards gainful employment or you know middle class lives, and we know that you know many unions don't necessarily organize people who are not working. We're having a hard enough time just trying to organize those who are working. So I think. We have to rethink or reimagine public works as a way of, you know, bringing people into um, a situation where they can not only 
reproduce themselves, but also maybe use that labor or trans use reorganize that labor in a way that is is more organized around um, use value, like things that we need in cities versus those things that are are profitable, right? So I think that there's a with the right with the proper imagination and planning, we can actually create. Um, a different version of public works. We have to go back to like the Works Progress Administration, but you can imagine, you know, um, groups of people in cities working on, uh, you know, whether it's it's green energy or, you know, uh, care for older people, for for young kids, or either mm-hmm. or even, um, you know, doing things like around transportation in cities, right? And making cities much more, much more uh, uh, mobile, making people in cities much more mobile and having having much more um, access, right? I think there's a lot of different things that we could do, but the fund our futures or fund black futures uh, is a starting point. I think that's a good, it's a good impulse, but you have to do something much more substantial, right? But again, you know, focusing in on the economic conditions may be just as important as just curtailing, you know, the worst abuses of police because we're still stuck with with police. The other thing I'd say too is that out of this moment, and maybe this is this goes back to Claire's point about the economic crisis. I actually think that there's a, we're in a we're in a, a dangerous position in a way, right? If we don't push for the abolition of those those class conditions that I just alluded to. We could see some of the same ideas that are already lying on the table um, for city elites and state, you know, state uh, politicians that aren't going to change anything, right? They're actually going to create a much more uh, possibly insidious situation for all of us, right? Where you've already got pushes for privatization, you know, you've got mm-hmm. groups like the the American Legislative Exchange Council. You know, Alec is already on board with like restorative justice. What are they doing supporting restorative justice? Possibly because they see it the same way they saw charter schools. It's a way to break one, one type of public sector union and then open the door for further erosion of like public sector unions across the country, right? So I think if Alec is on board and various foundations and you know um, corporations are on board with these strategies, we may well see them, but they'll they'll come into play without necessarily addressing the inequality. The other thing is that you've got um, situations like here in, in Chicago where, you know, Lightfoot, after facing a lot of criticism for uh, the way she moved all resources, National Guard and police to downtown to stop rioting and looting, mm-hmm. she left neighborhoods vulnerable. Her response wasn't to, to shore up the police, the public police presence in the aftermath of those criticisms, she hired three minority-owned security contracts, I mean contractors, just to, mm. to protect stores in those neighborhoods. So I think the push towards privatization is another potential that we could see, you know, again, you know, in, in a way that that will resemble charterization and other things we've seen in other cities. And then the last thing is the, the technological push was already there, right? I mean, there's already a move. Um, towards intelligence-led policing across the country, right, in Los Angeles, in Chicago. And we found out about these things oftentimes through expose, right, not because local elites wanted us to know about how they were using facial recognition and, 
you know, networked um, security cameras and other things, you know, gang databases. But I think we can see much more in the way of that, right? Like uh, the fusion of, of um, artificial intelligence and, you know, um, more surveillance, right? As a way to, to uh, both remove the most visible and violent forms of policing, but also to, to create more, more controlling mechanisms for those persons who are, again, dispossessed, out of work, and, and criminalized, right? So what do you think? I list my own thoughts coming from this conversation. With regard to protests, Johnson's skepticism may well be justified in terms of their immediate outcomes. Uh, indeed, I'll go further. Virtually all of the last few great protest movements have failed in achieving their stated objectives to the extent that these objectives were clearly stated. Uh, and not only in the US. Uh, Occupy, most of the Arab Spring protests, Hong Kong, Black Lives Matter, and so on. The lesson I think is clear Protest by itself is not a winning strategy. But surely Hammonds is right in pointing out the significance of large protest movements as qualitative ruptures in politics as usual, as whirlwinds that can sweep away decades of illusion, apathy, or despair, and that can put an oppressive status quo forcefully and visibly on the defensive. And as Hammond says, we shouldn't downplay the sheer emotional power of protest movements to draw new people into politics and to renew the energy and commitment of those already active. With regard to unions, we should note Johnson's caution that non-unionized police in the US are no less brutal. Nor should we minimize the danger of setting negative precedents for other public sector unions. My own view is that socialists need to take up the challenge of confronting particular unions or even specific kinds of labor as undermining rather than reinforcing class solidarity. Uh, the logic is undeniably treacherous. Uh, for example, what should our stance be towards unions in fossil fuel uh, or the defense industries? But we need to take this risk. Perhaps most provocatively, Johnson questions even the possibility of a police-free society if one defines police as people with the legal authority to exercise physical, coercive power over others. We all desire a society in which someone who drives through a red light and kills a pedestrian then voluntarily turns themselves in. But that's a long way away. And meanwhile, we need some people with the authority to physically restrain others against their will. Here, I'm in full agreement with Johnson, uh, as are majorities of people in opinion polls in the US, uh, including non-whites. Abolition of police is a powerful discursive and mobilizing demand, uh, and entirely police-free societies may well work under narrowly defined conditions. But societies with no need for physical coercion at all are quite distant. Of course, I, and likely you, uh, if you're listening to this, agree with Johnson that our ultimate objective is the abolition of 
the class conditions that create a certain kind of policing. The specific avenues Johnson uh, proposes, like the expansion of public infrastructure and social investment generally, uh, also are not controversial. But whether a drastic reduction in policing is the step we can and should take now, well, on that we appear to disagree. In the coming weeks, I'll be rounding out these conversations on policing and protest with Rachel Himes, an activist in New York City, and Doug McAdam, a leading sociologist of social movements in the U.S. Join us in thinking aloud about how our day-to-day work during Corona can cohere into a battle plan for democratic socialism after it. (laughs) 